Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. As pretty much everybody predicted, Kevin McCarthy surrendered. The speaker chose Memorial Day Sunday when voters are maximally distracted honoring our veterans and enjoying time with their family and friends in the real world to announce he did exactly what we all knew he would do. He folded on the debt ceiling. Thing is, this was not a normal surrender, like you fought hard but just couldn't pull it off. No, this was a complete and total surrender, the kind where you look around for extra things to give the Vikings as they carry off your children. Maybe you bake them a pie for the long trip back to Norway. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, Kevin got roughly nothing in return for at least $4 trillion in new debt, Possibly much more debt since Kevin very helpfully suspended the debt ceiling until, get this, after the 2024 election. Now, given how fast Biden's handlers run through trillions, they will gobble that right up, at which point it is a straight shot to a national debt of $40 trillion. Last week, I kept predicting that McCarthy would slow the runaway train from 80 miles an hour to 798 while quietly greenlighting it to go back up to 90. In fact, he didn't slow it at all. He just greenlighted it to 100. In gory detail, non-military discretionary spending, which is roughly a third of a third of the $6 trillion budget, that's one-ninth, is, quote, flat for a single year and gets an alleged 1% cap for another year, both of which will, going by past form, be gamed into oblivion by emergency bills, adjustments, and exemptions. Military spending naturally got a 3% boost to $886 billion so no foreign country is left behind. I had predicted the GOP would beg for Chinese crumbs to distract the voters back home who actually expected them to do something, and they delivered by gum with two crumbs. First was a tiny cut to the IRS, which had just gotten $80 billion to audit the middle class. Note that just 2% of audits are actually on people who make over a million. The other 90 98% are for us. Based Congressman Dan Bishop summed it up as, quote, there will be 85,260 more IRS agents rather than 87,000 to eat you alive. Big win. The second crumb, which Kevin was so proud of, it dominated his surrender tweet, raised food stamp work requirements from age 49, where they've been for years, to age 54. Kevin trumpeted this as, quote, the most consequential work requirements in a generation, which begs the question, what the heck have Republicans been doing for a generation? By the way, I did browse the comments of Kevin's surrender tweet, and out of 50 comments, 100% were negative. That is an astounding level of failure. And 11% of Americans believe in, believe in Bigfoot, 38% believe that the dollar is backed by gold or oil. Yes, that is why I make these videos. 4% of Americans believe Elvis is alive. He would be 88 and still rocking. But 0% of Kevin McCarthy's Twitter followers, all Republicans going by the tone, think this was a good deal. In the Washington Uniparty, establishment Democrats and Republicans know their place. Defend the elite, crush the people. They will be toasting this one at the country club while voters wondered why they bothered. 
What is the actual goal of the climate change movement? Not what they say, but what they do. A few days ago, we saw a story about a nuclear plant in Finland that actually had to throttle its electricity because it was producing so much that electric prices went negative. In contrast, in Germany, where they just closed their last plants, prices for industrial customers, which are usually the cheapest because of bulk discounts, are over 18 cents per kilowatt, which is 54 times higher than Finland's recent peak. So high, in fact, the German government just announced a 200 billion euro package, equivalent to 1.2 trillion if it were the U.S. economy, to insulate households and pay companies so they don't close down or move overseas. Begging the question, why don't we just build more nuclear plants and ditch the rest of the climate agenda? After all, nukes are zero emission and they are very safe today, contrary to environmentalist propaganda. Even Fukushima was built in 1971, which is 52 years years ago. In fact, modern nukes are amazingly safe compared to, say, wind power. A recent Scottish study found in the UK alone over 1,300 wind turbine accidents per year that extrapolating from previously public data, the UK wind industry now has legal confidentiality so it doesn't have to report injuries and deaths, suggests about 50 people killed by wind turbines per year in the UK alone, including workers and bystanders killed by blade failures. That extrapolates to perhaps 1,500 worldwide per year. Add in solar, millions of rooftop installations, which kill over 100 people per year in the U.S. alone, plus hydro, where 158 workers died building a single dam in China, along with 4 million residents who lost their homes. In comparison to this carnage, nuclear has killed a grand total of 32 people in history ever and never with any design built since the 1970s. And then, of course, there's the cost. Wind and solar are incredibly expensive, even after trillions in taxpayer subsidies, $1.2 trillion from the hilariously titled Inflation Reduction Act alone, and perhaps tens of trillions in aggregate worldwide. And, of course, renewable power is often utterly useless since grids need uninterrupted power. So utilities have actually shut off the wind and solar, throwing it away, because of these fluctuations called curtailing. Finally, of course, the carbon dioxide. Personally, I don't think man-made global warming is significant, even if you rebrand it as climate change. But even if you do believe it, that would imply going all nuclear, which is, of course, zero emission. The fact that our mainstream instead fights nukes hardest while pushing green lobby unicorn farts suggests to me anyway that the entire project has little to do with the climate, but with something else. So what is that something else? We got a hint the other day when LinkedIn censored presidential candidate at Vivek Ramaswamy for daring to say that fossil fuels, well, specifically the cheap energy they provide, are essential for prosperity. This is obviously true. Energy goes into everything and prosperity saves lives. But of course, it's against the political religion that casts us all as sinful carbon footprints that must be centrally planned. Ideally, with a world government with dictatorial power over everything from banning gas stoves to wiping out Dutch farmers to, just the other day, France banning cheap flights while leaving billionaires to fly their jets to the next town, perhaps to lecture us about climate change. The climate agenda is about control, using the environment as a marketing and a fundraising prop, and they are just getting started. Is the college degree going away? Can we make it go away faster? 
A few days ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an article how a rising number of high school grads are skipping college for the trades as blue-collar wages hold up better than white-collar. In fact, the college enrollment wa- rate for young people dropped to 62% last year, down from 66 pre-pandemic and 70% in 2009. That was the thick of the 2008 crisis when millions were taking shelter from a terrible job market. What's driving the drop is job growth and rising wages in fields that don't require degrees, from leisure and hospitality to construction, manufacturing, and warehousing. Wage growth in leisure and hospitality, for example, outpaced all jobs by roughly 50% since pre-pandemic, with restaurants now paying on average $14 an hour, machinists making $23 an hour, and carpenters making $25 an hour. The chief economist of ZipRecruiter summed it up as, quote, the pandemic disrupted college and many people delayed going. Once they delay, they get hooked on earning and don't come back. Given we're about to, in theory, see a resumption of interest rates or interest payments on college loans on average $460 per month, those skippers are about to feel even better about their choices, especially considering surveys say almost 40% of college students aren't sure if the degree was worth it, largely because they don't even use their degrees in their current job, meaning they could have skipped college, saved the tuition, and banked four years of earnings. So while I'm glad more young people are skipping the woke universities, it's worth asking how we got here in the first place, how universities made themselves necessary. And the answer is simple. Starting the 1950s, activists got the courts to ban competency exams as racist in a series of cases culminating in 1971's Griggs versus Duke Power, after which employers were forced to rely on other measures of competency i.e. a college degree. After all, how else can a company figure out who's a good employee? You'd have to throw a dart and pray. This sent college enrollment soaring, rising threefold to the point that today almost 40% of Americans have a college degree, many of whom don't use it. Without that, those competency bans, it would probably be closer to 13%. So that's a whole lot of gender studies majors who could have done something useful in life. So at this point, how can we fix it? Easy. Bring back the competency exams. Recognize the obvious fact that competency exams are the least discriminatory selection mechanism possible. They're certainly more race-blind and gender-blind than today's woke universities. After all, companies will always look for the best candidate, regardless of race or gender, simply because companies are greedy. Good employees make you money. Only in the cartoon imaginations of activist judges who've never run a business do companies sit around hiring crappy employees because they're straight Christians. In the real world, you hire on merit or you go bust. And so while it is still early days, skipping college is an encouraging trend. It would be glorious to return to the days when young Americans didn't have to waste 100,000 in four years, sometimes closer to six, for useless degrees that feed the revolutionary Marxists indoctrinating the next generation. Still, we'll have to see whether the trend continues. Last night, Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling deal in principle, surrender in principle to his voters, passed the House of Representatives, garnering more Democrat votes than GOP votes, which makes sense considering Kevin's deal may as well have been written by Democrats. 
The Washington Uniparty was very pleased with Kevin himself enjoying a, quote, standing ovation from some fellow Republicans, while establishment Republican surrogates ran the cable circuit, repeating the lie that Social Security and Medicare were about to be defunded when there was always plenty of money, even if the limit hit and ended deficits. To put Kevin's standing ovation in context, one CNN poll found almost 80% of Republican voters wanted major spending cuts, along with independent voters by a two-to-one margin. Even Democrat voters were evenly split, with half wanting major spending cuts in order to raise the ceiling. In other words, Kevin McCarthy just delivered a deal that strikes the perfect balance for Democrat voters. As if Republican and independent voters don't even exist, as in the voters who elected him. As bad as Kevin's deal is, getting roughly nothing for $4 trillion plus in debt, it gets even worse once you dig into the details. Because the deal doesn't just raise the ceiling, it suspends it altogether until January 1st, 2025. That is very significant, one might say devious, For two reasons. First, it gets past the 2024 election, which throws away the main leverage Republicans have, which is talking about spending during elections when voters actually have a say. Second, and even more devious, that very specific date of January 1st is calculated to place the next debt ceiling hike smack dab in the next Congress's lame duck session. That's the period between the election and the new Congress taking office which is a period when Congress can ignore voters and cater to the machine. Meaning the next time Congress raises the ceiling, which they'll do roughly 36 hours before that January 1st deadline to scare grandma, they will not have a care in the world from pesky voters. So not only did McCarthy give away $4 trillion for peanuts, not only did he manage to find the exact center of Democrat Party voters, he actually crippled debt ceilings until... 2026, when, according to the CBO, we will have over $36 trillion in federal debt. That's almost 150% of GDP and almost $300,000 for every American who actually pays income tax. So what happens next? Based Senator Mike Lee has promised to use, quote, every procedural tool to fight the deal, while Senator Rand Paul lamented that, quote, conservatives have been sold out again and is demanding a deal that balances the federal budget in five years. Unfortunately, they are massively outnumbered in the Senate, even in their own party. While Democrats will, of course, greenlight a deal that strikes the perfect balance for their voters. And so, barring a miracle, the deal is done. The Senate will pass, Biden will sign, all before the June 5th deadline. Meaning it is back to the march to $36 trillion by the CBO's own tally, That would be almost $5 trillion in fresh deficits to keep the money printers running hot for years to come. Republicans, independents, even fiscally aware Democrats will keep getting screwed until enough voters of every party wake up, get angry and demand the clowns in Washington actually serve the voters. And it's all over, but the big guy signing as Kevin McCarthy's debt surrender passes the Senate, garnering just one third of Republican votes and an impressive two thirds of Democrat senators. The rule of thumb in life is if your deal is really popular with the other guys, but your own guys hate it, you probably gave away too much. 
In fact, Kevin Steele was so popular with Democrats, perhaps he should switch parties next time. Seeing all the establishment Republican talking heads selling this turd sandwich on the cable circuit these past couple days has shown the stark divide between Republicans who serve the D.C. Beltway and those who serve America. This is true of both parties, of course. Democrats talk a big game about helping the poor and marginalized. And then the first thing they do when they actually get power is turn the city or state into a dystopian hellscape. Detroit voters, for example, have been dutifully electing Democrats who claim to passionately fight for the poor. They've been doing that for going on 61 years, during which their city went from a shining beacon to the world. In 1962, Detroit was a beautiful city that was going places, basically what Dubai or Singapore is today. And of course, today it is a bleak wasteland. So 61 years of Democrats who allegedly fight obsessively for the little guy, the forgotten man, the poor and marginalized who just need that first rung on the ladder. And what's the reality? A government strip mine where the schools don't teach, the police aren't allowed to stop crime. In fact, for over a decade now, one of the main functions of the Detroit city government is knocking down abandoned homes. 15,000 so far with 22,000 to go. That is a government that has completely given up. It has given up trying to revitalize, to make the city livable so people come back. Instead, it just demolishes itself like a snake eating its own tail. And then, of course, there are the schools. There can be fewer beloved groups in America than poor children. Everybody wants to help them, especially Democrats, if we believe their rhetoric. The reality... A few months ago, Baltimore confessed that just 7% of its students were proficient in math, with fully 23 schools that had precisely zero students who were proficient in math, including 10 high schools. Another 20 schools had one single student who could do math. Detroit is even worse, with just 4% proficient in math and just 5% who can even read proficiently. And they do this with plenty of money. Baltimore spends 21000 per student to fail to educate them, 30% more than the rest of America. Even Detroit spends 15500 per student, which is within 3% of the national average, on top of aid from the state of Michigan. So what is the solution? Take as much power as possible away from the government and give it back to the people. Defund them where possible. Kevin McCarthy just threw away a golden opportunity. Replace them where possible, especially in education, so parents can choose schools that actually educate. And for the rest, Americans have to wake up and demand more. It is not normal to have collapsing cities and dying towns in one of the richest countries in the world. We didn't have those things in the 1950s when our GDP was much lower. But until American voters do wake up and actually hold politicians accountable of both parties, it will continue. The one statistic that keeps the mainstream media pretending the economy is fine is jobs statistics. A couple recent reports are making those numbers look more and more deceptive. The other day, the widely watched JOLT survey measuring job openings and job quits came out and it was, according to Zero Hedge, bizarre. Meanwhile, the Bureau of Labor Statistics massively, really comically, revised their most recent real hourly compensation estimates, that's the buying power of your salary, from a 0.7% annual gain, weak but positive, to, get this, a drop of 4.7%. 
That's an astounding revision. And real compensation normally moves a percent or two per year, and here the BLS was off by five and a half, meaning either they are completely incompetent or the original numbers, the ones that got reported in the press, are intentional lies. On the jolts, according to the finest statisticians governments can buy, the number of job openings soared by almost 360,000 after over a year of declines. This was roughly 700,000 higher than Wall Street consensus. In fact, it was higher than the highest Wall Street estimate, suggesting that either Wall Street is getting really, really bad at predicting jobs numbers or that something odd, bizarre perhaps, is going on with the numbers. Arguing for Team Bazaar was the completely contradictory numbers in the other half of the report that job quits tumbled to the lowest in two years. Now, falling quits is widely interpreted as people being nervous about finding a replacement job. So if opening soar 700,000, beating even the most coke-fueled Wall Streeter, you do not expect quits to fall to the lowest in two years. Now, it is entirely possible that government statisticians try their best despite institutional incentives to lie, but they can only see what their tools show them, and JOLTS, like many government numbers, is calculated by sending out questionnaires and praying that companies bother filling them in diligently and truthfully, despite having no particular reason to waste their time. Thing is, this response rate has been drifting down for a decade, but it absolutely plunged during COVID, hitting just 31% from 70% a decade previous. Perhaps because companies were short-staffed and had more pressing priorities than giving government statisticians raw material for their statistical fantasies. The problem, and this is Statistics 101, is that if your sample changes dramatically, let's say dropping from a 70% response to a 31%, you have to stop everything and thoroughly understand what happened. For example, if the struggling company stopped responding, then you're only reading the growing companies, the companies that are hiring. Or if some companies are more likely to respond, say government contractors, then you're not measuring jobs at all. You're just measuring government spending. Fixing the sample is hard work and cost budget, and it is hard to see why the BLS has any interest in debunking jobs numbers that are helping the administration who, after all, determines their annual budget. And so right on cue, we've got two more jobs reports this week, both looking like blockbusters at almost 50% above Wall Street estimates. The market did not react to the first, suggesting the smart money no longer believes these statistics. If that continues, it leaves us with shadow indicators, things like credit cards and household uh, budgets, and even less confidence whether government statistics are even trying to tell the truth. Governments worldwide are trying to replace cash with CBDC surveillance tokens, and people worldwide are starting to wake up. Last week, the right-leaning Austrian Freedom Party lodged a protest against the current left-wing government for ignoring a referendum on the right to use cash after an overwhelming 530,000 Austrians signed a referendum petition. With CBDCs now being pushed worldwide in the face of widespread public opposition, I think we'll see more clashes over protecting the people's right to save and to spend anonymously with cash, something we've had for a long time, for millennia, uh, and have taken for granted, but is now under threat of being seized into a CBDC, a giant balance sheet the government can surveil and manipulate at will, turning your money into an allowance. 
In fact, a recent poll found that Americans overwhelmingly reject a CBDC, and opposition rises as they learn more about it. For example, opposition doubles when people learn a CBDC can be used to freeze the bank account of political protesters. It rises to even more when they learn a CBDC allows government to monitor your spending. And it rises to 74% when they learn a CBDC lets government control your spending. Cholera polls better. So why do governments keep pushing CBDCs when voters hate them? Simple, CBDCs are irresistible to governments who would dearly love to monitor and control every dollar you spend. Think of the opportunities for social engineering, reparations, or a China-style social credit system. Meanwhile, punishing political opponents with a CBDC means controlling speech which means permanent job security for politicians who serve the deep state first with the people as an afterthought. So how can we fight CBDCs? The easiest is to make sure your government doesn't start one. Central banks worldwide, eight at last count, starting with China, are running CBDC pilot projects, allegedly for research, that build fully functional CBDCs without authorization. These should be stopped for the same reason government shouldn't be piloting, say, tools to mass censor political speech. The people control the government, not the other way around, and we tell them what they're allowed to pilot via our elected representatives. By the way, central banks can run these pilots without authorization because they're self-funding. They print their own budgets with their magical basement money printers, meaning in many countries, central banks do what they like, free of the power of the purse that controls most of government. In fact, many central banks, including the Fed, are largely exempt from freedom of information requirements where governments have to tell the people what they're up to. As Murray Rothbard put it, the Fed has less congressional oversight, meaning less voter oversight, than the CIA. This means central banks will do what they like until Congress very specifically tells them to stop. I mean, spelled out like central bankers are five-year-olds, including a blanket CBDC ban and a ban on pilots, even when they try to sneak one in by running it through banks or contractors. CBDC pushers are building them using central bank machinery that's currently immune from voters. It is up to us to make our representatives stop them before we are locked in a digital cage that none of us voted for. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And I hope to see you on Twitter or Substack. We'll be watching. See you next time. (music) 